We're up to chapter 4, Mishnah number 12. I'm going to read the Mishnah, translate it, and then we'll go through a little bit of the backstory of this very important personality from the second second century of the Common Era. Rabbi Meir Omer, Rabbi Meir says, You should reduce your business activities and engage in Torah study. And you should be of humble spirit before every person. If you neglect the study of Torah, you're going to have a lot of excuses or a lot of other things to occupy you and other ways to uh, to neglect it. However, if you labor in Torah, if you toil in Torah, the Almighty has ample reward to give you. This is Rabbi Meir's teaching about an attitude, a perspective of how we're supposed to relate to Torah. And we'll get into the teaching in a little bit, but first I want to talk about Rabbi Meir himself. And it's not an overstatement to say that he is one of the most important figures in Jewish history. He lives in very tumultuous times. The whole period in the aftermath of the destruction of the Second Temple, which according to most sources is the year 70 of the Common Era, and that really teach stars. So that's that, that's the apex of an entire century's worth of of tension and conflict that the Jews have with the Romans. And sixty years later, of course, we have the Bar Kokhba revolt. The Jews get sick of being mistreated by the Romans. They launch a revolt, which is incredibly successful, at least initially. They're able to kick the Romans out of much of the land of Israel and reinstitute sovereignty and start rebuilding the temple until the Romans come back and they enforce a very harsh mistreatment of of the Jewish populace and they stamp out the rebellion and they slaughter just entire towns in horrific devastation. And we've spoken about this period in the past, how the rabbis really suffered a lot during this era. And in fact, the rabbis themselves were on the chopping block when the temple was being destroyed and there were ravaging Jewish communities. It was only thanks to the intercession of Rabbi Yochanan Medzakai where he petitioned Vespasian, who was the general overseeing the siege of Jerusalem. He petitioned him, okay, spare the small town of Yavne and its sages, and that way there's going to be some continuity because at least the rabbis in Yavne will not be destroyed. And that gave a certain reprieve for the nation and for the rabbinic leadership. But right afterwards, things weren't, you know, always pleasant. And there were times that the rabbis had to, you know, disband, had to go into hiding, were targeted for assassinations. And we've spoken about in the past how the Romans began to target a lot of the central institutions of the rabbinic tradition. And we spoke about how Rabbi Akiva had 24,000 students and they all died under uh, mysterious conditions and there was really no one left. The land was barren in the words of the Talmud. But there were five students that he found in the south and these five students became that vital link of the chain to get the Jewish nation and the Torah tradition through a very difficult time and to perpetuate it to the upcoming generation. And those five students of Rabbi Hiva who survived are some of the most important figures in, in Jewish history. Of course, we are on the cusp of Lagba Omer, 
which is the anniversary of the passing of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai, who was one of those students. And Rabbi Meir is also one of the, those five students. If you remember, we spoke about in the past how they were given smicha surreptitiously. The old rabbi goes between two cities and gives smicha, gives rabbinic ordination to these five students. And then they all scatter and the Romans come and they assassinate this old rabbi for the horrific crime of teaching Torah to the next generation. But these five students became that vital stepping stone between the generation of Rabbi Ativa and the generation of Rabbi Judah the Prince. And after kind of the next generation, things eased up a little bit, and there was once again a flourishing of Torah, and some of the most important personalities of our history are kind of the next generation and the writing of the Mishnah and the, you know, the flexibility and the freedom to be able to canonize the oral Torah that began in the next generation. Now, Rabbi Meir is very important because of the students of Rabbi Akiva. Apparently, he took the best notes. And when Rabbi Judah the Prince, in the next generation, wanted to write down the Mishnah, the way they did it, it's more efficient, they took the best notes of the previous generation, of the students of Rabbi Akiva, and they said, okay, we're going to use it as the basis, and we're going to add everything around it, but this is going to be the basis. Whose notes did he choose? He chose the notes of Rabbi Meir, and that's why whenever there's a Mishnah, again, the Mishnah is a collection of 63 books, upon the Mishnah we have the Talmud written. So this is the, the, the very foundation of the writing down of the oral Torah. This is essentially the works, the notes of Rabbi Meir that were expanded by Rabbi Judah the Prince and his court. And therefore, Talmud tells us, that whenever we have a Mishnah, a teaching of the Mishnah that is unattributed, it doesn't say who's the author, it doesn't say Rabbi Akiva says this, Rabbi Tarfon says this, Rabbi Shimon says this, it just says the law, that is the notes of Rabbi Meir. He appears literally hundreds of times in the Mishnah and in the Talmud, and interestingly, the Raman points this out, he does not come from rabbinic pedigree. In fact, he is a descendant of converts. And he is a living testament to the meritocracy of Torah. Rabbi Tiva himself, his teacher, was also a descendant of converts. And when the Rambam talks about the tradition and the greatest leaders of every generation, he notes that the Torah is a meritocracy and you don't need to come from illustrious rabbinic pedigree to be, to be good if you're good, if you're great, then you are welcome on board. He has some very famous relatives. His wife is probably the most famous woman in the Talmud. His wife's name was Bruria. She was the daughter of Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion, who, by the way, was an author of a previous Mishnah. He was one of the ten martyrs that were slain by the Romans. And Rabbi Meir was actually a talented scribe, so he had a profession. And it's interesting, he does give us a Mishnah. If you examine this Mishnah, you'll notice he's giving us direction of how to relate to Torah study in concert with an occupation. And it's noteworthy he himself had an occupation. He was a very talented scribe. And the Talmud tells that there was once, he was once in a locale, he was once in a, a place where they didn't have a book of Esther. They didn't have a copy of it. And it wasn't like you could Google it. This is before Google, if you can remember that uh, that world. 
And there was no copies. So what do you do? And it's Purim time. So Rabbi Meir happened to have been there. He says, give me a scroll. They give him a blank scroll and he just sits down and writes it all down by heart. Obviously a man of tremendous uh, genius. Now the Talmud tells us that he had unparalleled Torah prowess. In fact, the Talmud says that when you would see Rabbi Meir in the house of scholarship, when you would see him studying, it would look like he's uprooting mountains and grinding them together. Now, what does that mean? It means that his his force of, of Torah knowledge was so intense, he could uproot a mountain, something you thought was immovable, something you thought was permanently affixed in place, he could uproot it with his genius and with his with his Torah knowledge. In fact, the Talmud says that his depth of reasoning was so profound that even his colleagues didn't sometimes understand how deep it was. And he was able to prove, for example, he would bring 150 proofs that a rodent is kosher. And we know rodents not kosher. That's the mountain. It's totally influential. It's not kosher. But comes along our mayor says, I'll, I'll approve the mountain. I'll grind it together. Whatever you think about it, I could, I could think on so many layers deeper than you. And even deeper than his colleagues, of course, great Torah scholars, that they weren't able to come to agreement to follow his opinion. His opinion was so advanced that they couldn't get behind it because he was the only one who was able to think on that, on that deep level. In fact, Rabbi Judah the Prince, for sure, certainly one of the most important figures in Jewish history, he's the one who makes that very important decision to write down the Mishnah, to codify the Mishnah, to codify or to begin to codify the oral law. He was a student in the academy of Rabbi Meir. And he says, all my knowledge, all my Torah wisdom, it's because I was in the same venue as Rabbi Meir, but I was sitting behind him. He was giving a lecture and there were some students behind him. I was behind him. I only got kind of the back of it. Had I been in facing him, had I seen his front, I would have been even greater. Now, what does that mean? Of course, it's the Talmud. We have to understand there might be some subliminal message. What he's, in effect, saying is that I, I understood Rabbi Meir, but not as clearly as I, as I could have, or maybe some, as other people did. And all my Torah greatness all stems from my relationship with him. And in the manner of all great Torah sages and Jewish leaders throughout history, he was not someone that had disparate domains. You know, the, the central underlying characteristic of every great Torah leader is that there's no difference between their knowledge, what they know, what they preach, what they profess, what they study, and how they behave. And invariably, a Torah sage is someone who, you know, there's no daylight between who they are as a person and what they know as a scholar. And the Talmud gives a few stories about Rabbi Meir that really hammer home this point. For example, the Talmud tells us he would give a lecture every Friday night. And one week, his lecture went a little bit over time. And the lecture was attended not only by men, but by women as well. And there was one woman who attended his lecture. She liked to go to his lecture every week. And by the time she got back, it was such a long lecture, the candles that she had lit before Shabbat had already extinguished. So now they're going to have to have their meal in darkness. So, of course, her husband, 
gets a little grumpy and says, what's the deal? Why are you so late? And she says to him, well, I was in the base medrash. I was in the scholarship house listening to the lunch of Rabbi Meir. So he gets fed up with Rabbi Meir, with his wife. He says, I'm not letting you enter my house until you go and spit in the face of Rabbi Meir. Of course, that's uh, incredibly offensive, disrespectful. But Rabbi Meir gets wind of this. And he decides in an act of tremendous humility to take one for the team to save this marriage. So he pretended that his eye was hurting. And he said, I I really need someone to kind of lubricate the eye and to spit in the eye a little bit. And he approaches this woman and says, I really need you to spit in my eye. Do it seven times just to make sure that we really get it. And afterwards, she does it. And then he tells her, okay, go back to your husband and tell her, you asked me to spit once, I did seven times. Now, the students can't, can't believe what they're seeing. The greatest sage in the land, the great Rabbi Meir, he, he's the one that we, you know, the oral Torah comes through him. And what's he doing over here? How are you disrespecting yourself? How are you ashamed of yourself in the Torah? They say to him, you know, you're not just representing yourself, you're representing Torah. It's a disgrace to Torah. You're making a mistake. So he responds to them. He says, well, Am I any better than the Almighty? And he tells us what happens with the Almighty. In the episode of the suspected adulteress, it's the one time they were allowed to take a Torah scroll and erase it. And the name of God is written in the Torah scroll, and we erase that as well. Why? Because we take the parchment upon which it says the name of God, amongst other things, and we dip it into the water that becomes the potion that verifies the allegations against the Sota. And the Talmud tells us that peace between husband and wife, matrimonial peace is so important that the Almighty says, okay, even erase my name to uh, uphold marital peace. If the Almighty is willing to erase his name from marital peace, says Rabbi Meir, I'm no better than God. I could also have a little bit of shame. I could also have a little bit of suffering to promote matrimonial harmony. Now, his name was Rabbi Meir, but he is often called Rabbi Meir Balhanes. Rabbi Meir, the master of the miracle. And that is primarily because of this miraculous story that's told in the Talmud book of Avodah Zarah. Remember, this is a time where the Romans are controlling the land with an iron fist. And one of the things they used to do is they would kidnap Jewish girls and force them to engage in the lowest kind of employment. And one of his sisters-in-law, so his wife is Bruria, and her sister was kidnapped by the Romans, and she was forced to work in a brothel. So Rabbi Meir, his wife tells him, okay, go there and go rescue her. Go redeem her. Let's find a way to get her safe. Let, let, let's get her out of that, of that place. So Rameir is given a, the impossible mission. He takes a satchel of money and he goes. And he 
makes the following declaration before he gets there. If she remained pure, if she didn't start adopting the ways of the sinners, I know a miracle is going to happen to her. She'll be saved. But if she did start sinning, if she did start transgressing, then there's not going to be a miracle for her. So Ramir gets dressed up. He takes off his rabbi clothing and dresses up like a knight, like a Roman knight. And he goes into this place. And he says, I want to, I want to be with that girl. And he points to his sister-in-law. And she says to him, well, it's not the right time of the month for me. Why don't you go to some of the other girls? That's what she tells him. And he says, that's okay. I'll wait. I'll wait till things clear up. That's what he tells her. And uh, she says, no, no, don't wait for me. There's other girls here. There's other women here. They're, they're prettier than me. Go to them. And Ramir is processing this and he realizes he's concluding from her response that she did not adopt a sinful way. So he says, okay, time to save her. So he goes over to the guard and he says to her, that particular woman, I want to, I want to buy her back. I want to bribe you to let her go free. So he responds, I'm happy to take the bribe. I'm happy to let the girl go. But what's going to be when the government comes, they start uh, doing, uh, you know, they're, they're doing their inspections and they're going to want to know where is this woman, this sister of Bruria? Where is she? What do I do then? So Ramirez says to them, listen, you know what to do. I bribe you, you bribe them. And so on and so forth. That's the way it works. That's the law of the land. Apparently business of government hasn't changed. And then he says, well, wait a minute. Eventually, I'm going to run out of the money. And eventually, I'm going to have to face my accusers. I'm letting one of the prisoners go. What do I do then? She says, okay, I'll give you the solution. Whenever you're in a bind, all you say is, May the God of Mayor, the God of Rabbi Mayor, answer me. And that's a magic solution Against any sort of, uh, of, of, of government harassment, you just say those magic words and you'll be saved. And of course, the guard is a little bit uh, incredulous to this promise. And he says, well, how do I know it's actually going to work? So I'm says, okay, I'll prove it to you. There was a bunch of beasts there. It might have been dogs that were trained to attack people and kill them. So Ramirez says, okay, release the dogs. Release the dogs! Let them out! I'll show you how this works. So he opens up the the cages. Ramirez throws something at the dogs to incite them, and they start galloping towards him. They're going to attack him. That's what they do. As they get close, Ramirez says, May the God of Mayor answer me. And the dogs freeze in place and they docilely walk away. This guard is so mind blown by what he saw. He takes the bribe and he lets the girl go. And of course, what happens? They come. He has to give the bribe. They come again. He runs out of money. And finally, there's a noose around the guard's neck. And he has no money to bribe anyone. And he says, Ella Kadameraneni. May the God of Mayor answer me, and the rope snaps. And I try it again, and the rope snaps again. 
And they say, what's the deal? So he tells them the whole story. Rabbi Meir comes, this, this rabbi comes, and he does all these tricks, and he, I gave the girl for free. I gave the girl to him, and I bribed him, and I have no more money. So they make Rabbi Meir a wanted man. And the way they describe it, they engrave his image at the entrance of Rome. Everyone who sees this man, he is a most wanted man. And then they see him, and he has to run away. And eventually he flees and he ends up in Babylonia and Babylon. And we know that he was in Israel, in Canaan, and eventually he had to leave and he actually died outside of Israel. And it's a great mystery. This is one of the modern uh, questions that the scholars grapple with. If you travel to northern Israel, to Tiberias, you'll see a bitch sign. Here is the gravesite of Rabbi Meir Balanes. And you're like, wait a minute. The Talmud says he was buried or he died outside of Israel. How was he buried here? How was he in Tiberias when he was buried outside of Israel? Uh, in Syria, probably, uh, along the coast where the waters of Israel will lap against him. So that's a question that the scholars deal with. But that's one of the reasons why he is called Rabbi Meir Balhanes, Rabbi Meir, the master of the miracle. Now, he led a tragic life. His first teacher, before he had Rabbi Akiva as a teacher, and it was common for people to have multiple teachers, as it still is today, his first teacher was one of the great sages of his era, but he had the ignominious distinction of being the only sage of that caliber, really throughout history, to have gone awry, to become a heretic. And his teacher was name was Rabbi Elisha Benavuya. That was his name. And he was one of the great sages of the era. But thanks to a series of unfortunate events, he became a heretic and he became a heathen and he became someone who desecrated the Shabbat. And even though he was still a great sage, and in fact, Rabbi Meir would still study by him. And the Talmud tells a great story of how you know, the student Rabbi Meir is studying by his teacher who's now riding a horse in Shabbat. Of course, we don't do that on Shabbat. And how the, the genius of the teacher is able to calculate from the gallops of the horse where they get to the point where you can no longer extend beyond that. You can no longer traverse that point on Shabbat. And he says to them, okay, I'm, I'm going to go past this, but you can't go past this. And the Talmud says, wait a minute, Rabbi Meir, what's the deal? You can't go study by the heretic. He's a heretic. He's a problem. You can't go study by him. And the Talmud says, well, Rameir, he was able to separate the good from the bad. And his whole life, he's trying to figure out a way to try to restore his teacher, who became known by the moniker Acher in, in Talmudic literature. Acher. Acher means the other one. And the reason why he's called Acher is because when he decided to abandon God, abandon Torah, abandon it all, it was Shabbat. And he says, I'm done with this. I'm fed up. And he goes and prepositions a prostitute on Shabbat. This is the very day he decides to abandon it all. And she says to him, wait a minute, aren't you the famous rabbi that I know of? Like, what are you doing here with all the lowlifes, with all the degenerates? And this is, remember, it's Shabbat. So he bends down to the floor and pulls out some grass from the floor, which is a Torah violation of of Shabbat. That was his response. 
So she says to him, you must be Acher. You must be someone else. I'm just confusing you. And that's how he got the nickname of being called Acher, the other one. And then that's one of the, the sad, uh, tragic stories in the Talmud that someone who was on such a high caliber, he became a heretic and he's called Acher. And Ramirez's whole life, he's trying to study Torah still from his teacher, but he's also trying to restore his teacher back to Torah. And that happens quite fruitlessly. There's a very dramatic story. What happens after he dies? There's smoke coming out of his grave. Romero is trying to petition, petition to, to get him out of hell and to restore him back to the Almighty's good graces. It's a very dramatic story. But that's uh, the first tragic episode of Rabbi Meir's life. His father-in-law, as we mentioned in the past, he was butchered by the Romans in a macabre fashion. Uh, they surrounded him with fire but far enough that he could just suffer and not actually perish until they eventually killed him. His wife also died in an unfortunate and very controversial matter. Rabbi Meir had a disagreement with the Nasi. At the time, his name was Rabbi Shimon Gamliel, the second one. And they had a disagreement, and Rabbi Meir decided to leave town. He moved to Tiberias, and he gave a teaching to his students and his wife. She was such a great sage as well. She was the one woman who who equaled all the male sages of her era. And uh, she was not happy with one of the lectures that he gave. Because in his lectures, he says, women, they're a little bit lightheaded. They could be uh, manipulated, shall we say, easier than men. It was controversial then, as it is today, and his wife says, that's not true. I'm not manipulable. And he says, well, you are. Sorry. Sorry, Han. You are. And he, uh, she insists that she's not. And then he proves to her that she too can be manipulated. And she got so depressed from this story that she actually killed herself. She committed suicide. And uh, again, this is another example of the suffering that Rabbi Meir endured. And on top of all of that, two of his sons and one of his daughters died in his lifetime. And there's another dramatic story about that. The Midrash tells that it was Shabbat and Rabbi Meir was teaching Torah. And two of his sons died on Shabbat, tragically. And the mother of the children, it's not clear if this is the same woman or maybe he got remarried after she died. The mother doesn't know what to do with the kids, with the bodies. And she decides to put them in bed and cover them in a sheet. After Shabbat is over, Rabbi Meir comes home and he's trying to figure out where are his children. So he asks his wife and she says, well, they went to go study. And he, she's saying, well, they went to study in heaven. You know, they're in heaven now. They're studying Torah in the heavenly academy. But she just said it ambiguously. They went to study. He says, well, I was just in the house of study. I was just in the study hall. And I looked all around the confine. They're not there. So she again says, okay, we'll make Havdalah. He made Havdalah. Where are my kids? Eh, they're coming back soon. She gives him to eat. And she says, oh, I have a question for you. Suppose a man came. And gave me a deposit. Deposit is something that is really theirs, really, really his. 
and deposited by me to watch, to safeguard. And now they want to come back. They want to come take it back. Should I allow them to take it back? So Rabbi Meir responds, of course, you know, the owner has rights to their things. And if they want it back, you have to give them back. And she says, okay, let me take you upstairs. She takes him upstairs, brings him to the room and shows him the fact that two of his sons had perished. And he took the lesson, of course, very, uh, very hard. And he starts bewailing his children. He calls them my teachers. These children would have been great sages on their own. And his wife tells him, well, isn't that what you just said? When the owner comes back to claim his deposit, you have to give it willfully. And he responds with a famous verse in Job, Hashem nas and Hashem lakach, the Almighty gives and the Almighty takes away. May the name of the Almighty, may it be blessed. And the Talmud finds this story as an exemplary example of the verse in scripture, a valiant woman who can find. We see that this wife of his, you know, we don't know the identity, is it the first wife, second wife, but she is someone who's able to navigate this very tricky and very tragic story with great skill. That's a little bit of the background of Rabbi Meir. Again, one of the most important figures of one of the most important eras of Jewish history, a transition time from when we have a temple, we have centralized Jewish leadership. We're going through a lot of very challenging times. We're facing tests that maybe the nation has never faced in its history. And we have a cadre of great Torah sages that are heroes for for all eternity. They kept Torah strong. They perpetuated Torah until things opened up a little bit and there could be the effort to actually write down and codify the Torah for all history. And he teaches us this lesson, A, to reduce our business activities and engage in Torah, to be very humble, and if we want to neglect Torah, we'll have a lot of good reasons to neglect Torah, and if we want to embrace Torah, the Almighty is going to give us reward. Now, it is interesting that he seems to be addressing this teaching not at the great sages, per se, but at the lay people. Who is he talking to? Someone who is engaging in business and is also studying Torah. This is not someone whose Torah occupation is a full-time job. This is someone who is trying to harmonize a life where they have to make a living to feed their family but they also want to make Torah a priority. And he's giving them instructions. He's telling them, you should reduce your business activities and engage in Torah. So the commentaries, primarily the Rabbeinu Yonah, they point out, this does not necessarily mean a question of time. To reduce the time engaged in business and augment the time that is engaged in Torah. What he says is that it's a question of priorities. It's a question of values. Someone could study Torah for maybe an hour or two hours a day out of 24. It's a small percentage, less than 10%. But if that is what animates them, that's what they look forward to. That's what's the excitement of the day. That is what everything is leading towards. That's the priority. Well, even though it's only two hours versus the other 22 that do other stuff, 
that becomes the central animating priority of their lives, and they fulfilled this dictum. They have made the Torah the priority in their lives. And what happens to someone who studies Torah? Someone who studies Torah is elevated, is uplifted, is exalted. And the very next thing, says Rabbi Meir, what do you need to do after you study Torah? You right away have to absorb a dose of humility. Not only humility, humility in front of every person. Every person should be someone that you should respond to and relate to with humility. Why? Because Torah is going to, of course, elevate your soul. And it's going to make you a more spiritual person. And you have to be very careful to not lose what you gain, lose even more than what you gain, have the losses outweigh the gains of Torah study. Because what happens if someone says, I'm the king of the world. Look at me. I study Torah. And look at all these plebeians, these peons, these other people that don't study Torah. You may be losing more than you're gaining with Torah. And therefore, it's very important after we exhort someone to study Torah, we have to remind him to not lose it all with hubris, with boastfulness, with arrogance. And then he says like this, what's the next thing? If you neglect the study of Torah, so the, the actual text of the verse, there are many of the people or of the things that can nullify Torah as well. That's the, the, the precise translation. So the way Rabbi Yonah understands the, the, the end of the Mishnah is that people could be rewarded or people will be rewarded for good and will be punished for bad. But who is going to reward people for good and who is going to punish people for bad? And this is how he understands the end of the Mishnah. If someone wants to abandon Torah, someone wants to neglect Torah, there is a lot of people that are also neglecting Torah that are there to provide, so to speak, divine retribution. They could be the club, so to speak, that the Almighty uses to punish someone. The way he says it, there are sinners there are lions and there are bears that are also not studying Torah. And they could be the whip, so to speak, the Almighty uses to punish you. But the Almighty himself is not going to punish you. Why? Because if the Almighty punishes you, it's very detrimental for all eternity. However, what happens if someone is embracing Torah and therefore they need to be rewarded? Who is going to be the one that's going to deliver that reward, it's not going to be an angel. It's not going to be an emissary. Rather, the Almighty is promising that he himself is going to be the deliverer of the reward. And of course, everything the Almighty does is going to be amplified much more than what other people do. And this is telling us that the punishment is always going to be a little bit more muted compared to the reward. Now, the commentaries add here, the Rambam, the Chassid Yaivetz as well, they talk about this. They understand the end of the Mishnah as, you know, this conflict. We have our responsibilities. We have our job. We have our family. We have our chores. Today, of course, everyone has all the 
television series that they have to watch. Oh, Sunday is this, Monday is that, so I could be manipulated and brainwashed by the people in Hollywood. Everyone always has a Jesus. And the most important thing that a person can do with their time, the most transcendental, transformative, valuable thing that you could do with your time is study Torah. Because it's the Almighty's guidance to how to live a better life, how to live a better afterlife, how to do what you were created to do. But of course, we have all these other things that are pulling us. So what this Mishnah is telling you is that you have to make a choice. Is the Torah a priority or is it not a priority? Of course, it starts off by saying, make the Torah a priority. But if you choose, this is the end of the Mishnah, if you choose to neglect it, there is never going to be a time that all those other things you got to take care of won't exist. You'll never reach inbox zero with all the stuff that you have to do. There's always stuff to do. There's, you know, uh, now it's uh, spring cleaning. Uh, then it is uh, Lowe's, the hardware store. They say never stop improving. Never stop. Never stop. You're never done. There's always something else to do. And once you're done with that, then the stuff that you started with is already out of style, out of fashion. So you can always work on your garden. You could always watch your television show. You could always go on social media. There is never a time that you'll say there's nothing to do. And if this was true then, all the more so it's true now. And therefore, your question is not, when will I have time to, to, to study Torah? Your question is, will I make Torah study a priority and let everything else work around it, not vice versa? I saw one of the commentaries, something that says something very powerful. He quotes another verse in Job, and the way it's explicated by the Talmud, the verse says, Adam le'amal yulat. A person was born to engage in work, in frenetic activity. However, what is not determined is what is the nature of that work? What is the nature of that toil? Is it going to be toil of Torah study? Or is it going to be toil of everything else? And concludes the Talmud, Ashramisham Alba Torah! Praiseworthy is he whose toil is in Torah. There's a adage known as Parkinson's Law. You know, there's, there's Murphy's Law, there's Godwin's Law, there's uh, Moore's Law. These are laws. They're not, not really laws, but they're adages, axioms. My favorite one is called Parkinson's Law because nothing to do with the illness, Parkinson's. I guess the guy who invented it is called Parkinson's. So this is the, the adage. Work expands so as to fill the time available for its completion. So if you have a week to do a project, it'll take a week to do. If you have a, if you have 24 hours to do it, you'll find a way to make it do in 20, 24 hours. But I, th- I feel like that's the message here. This is a version of, of this message. We all have tons of work to do. And if we don't make total priority, all that work is going to expand and take up all the time. And you have an excuse you have something to neglect it, you'll always have an excuse. You'll always have something to neglect it. And as a result, you'll never study Torah. And I want to maybe add a rephrasing of this teaching. Talmud says that person was created for toil, for work. What kind of work? That's your choice. 
I think we could rephrase this. The, the word of the Talmud is, is toil. Toil is painful work. What that means is that everyone is going to be allotted a certain amount of pain. And your choices determine what kind of pain you get. You know, having children. Talmud says that it's painful. It's painful not just to have children, to raise children. It's difficult. When you're choosing that lifestyle, you're choosing to say, I want the productive kind of pain versus the unproductive kind of pain. And the Almighty is going to maneuver the challenges of your life to more productive challenges. You know, if someone's dealing with a very difficult teaching the Talmud and they're thinking about it all the time, they might say, oh, you know what? All the other things that I could have made him think hardly about or all the other challenges that I could have consumed his time and his, and his efforts and his thoughts, I'm going to... I'm going to move those. I'm going to make that work out. That that will just work out the IRS troubles, the looking for a job troubles, all that, you know, the, the dentistry woes, all that. Let's put those aside because you know what? They're already dealing with difficult problems, but it's productive ones. I want to conclude this Mishnah with a very powerful teaching I saw from the Chafetz Chaim. Chafetz Chaim, of course, one of the great sages of the late 19th and early 20th century. He says like this. Again, we're talking about someone in this Mishnah who has a job. Why do they have a job? Because that's a mitzvah to feed your family. It's, it's, it's your noble cause, your noble responsibility to make sure that you are providing for your family. It's your responsibility. It's your mandate. You got to do it. And they're busy. And they don't have so much time available in their life, but they say, you know what? Torah is a priority for me. What he says is a very powerful idea. What happens if someone works the whole day? It's nighttime. They're tired. They're hungry. They want to relax. And they say, you know what? I'm going to study something. I'm going to study because it's a priority to me. How does the Almighty process that? How does the Almighty tally that up? The way he does it is that by this person demonstrating that they're willing to study Torah with whatever time they have available, that means that from 9 to 5 when they were working, if they weren't working, what would they have done? Well, let's look at the time that they weren't working and see what they did. And then we could take that and stretch it out over the time that they were working. Someone has to work. Can't blame them for that. That's what they have to do. But what someone does on their free time, that shows the Almighty what they would have done had they had more free time. And therefore, if someone studies during the free time, even though maybe it's difficult, then that actually gets stretched out. And that's the equivalent as if they studied the whole day. Because they would have done that had they been able to. Whereas if someone has the free time and they neglect Torah study, And there's a lot of Torah study neglect that's still there and available for you. Why? Because then we know what they would have done had they not been busy with all their other responsibilities. They probably would have neglected Torah as well. I remember when I was in the Mir Yeshiva, my Rebbe, my teacher, Rabbi Asharieli, used to always say that when someone 
studies Torah at night. So the the, the Shiva schedule is that there's a, a morning session, which is 9 to 1, and there's afternoon session with 3 to 7, and then there's an evening session that has a start time but doesn't have an end time. Some people need a lot more sleep, and therefore they go to sleep a little earlier. Some people... You know, only need a few hours of sleep, so they go to sleep later. But it starts, let's say, at eight or nine o'clock, wherever it is, and it goes on till whenever you want to, whenever you want to finish. So there's a blessing that we say at night called the Hamapel blessing. It's the last blessing you say before you go to sleep. In fact, you're not allowed to talk after you say that blessing because now you're ready in sleep mode. So he used to tell us. You should say that blessing when you're still in the in the in in in, in the base matters. You're still studying. Why? Because that shows that you're studying all the way till sleep time. And had you not needed to sleep, the eight hours they might have made you sleep. But what would have happened if you didn't need to sleep? Well, then you would have studied, as evidenced by the fact that you studied until you went to sleep, and therefore. If you study that last five minutes, so someone's studying, they're, they're tremendously diligent, assiduous in, in studying. But the last five minutes before they sleep, you know, they want to chill out. They want to listen to the radio or they want to, they want to read. They want to do other stuff. Well, that five minutes is critical because we could perhaps extend that. That's maybe what they would have done had they not needed to sleep. And therefore, if someone is always studying all the way to the last second, then that eight hours counts as if they study Torah for those eight hours. Why? Because they have shown that the only reason why they are sleeping, it's because they need to. When I got married, one of Chaya's uncles, one of my wife's uncles, he gave a speech by uh, by the Shabbos Sheva Brachas, by the Shabbos after we got married. And he said that women have it very easy, you know, because they marry a young scholar and the, they send them off to yeshiva. They send them off to kol to go study. And from the second that they send him off, well, they've done their part. They've kind of lost their husband for the day, and he goes to study. But he gets there, and he's like, well, I need a coffee. Let's start with the coffee. And they study for a little bit. And then, you know what? How was your weekend? They start schmoozing with their chavrusa, with their study partner. And, you know, maybe they, they go out, they go out for seven, eight hours. But of that time, you know, there was other things that they did and there's all these holes. And you know what? They don't get credit for that because they didn't study. But the wife, what did she do? She sent her husband to go study. And therefore she ends up with the merit, so to speak, of all the hours because she didn't take time away from, so to speak, doing her role. That was his job, that the women, even though they don't study as much, they end up with a lot more Torah study credits. I saw another story uh, with the Stipler Gon. He was Rabbi Yakrov Kanievsky, one of the great sages of the 20th century. He passed away, I think, in 1985. He said that he was once in a, in a cab, and he asked the cab driver... Do you study Torah? Do you go maybe to a Torah class at night? Something like that. He says, well, I get home. I'm so tired. And if I go there, if I do go to study, I fall asleep right away. So it's not worth it. I just stay home and go to sleep at home. So he says to him, no. If you go there, and even if you fall asleep, but you go there and you study as much as you can, 
when you get up to heaven, they're going to consider you as if you're a Torah general. Because you did what you can. You pushed yourself to do what you can, even though you have a very busy schedule, not a lot of time. But if you push yourself during those critical moments, even if you fall asleep, okay, but you, you put in your effort, you're going to be considered as if you are a Torah general. That's the teaching of Rabbi Meir. He is, of course, one of the most important figures of Jewish history. It is his notes that are the basis of the Mishnah, uh, 63 books of Mishnah we have today. And he teaches us that we don't need to be solely dedicated to Torah study to make Torah priority in our lives. And even if we do have responsibilities, most of us do. All of us do, I would say. No one really could say that, you know, they have no responsibilities in their lives and all they got to do is to study Torah. Maybe there are a few people like that, but that's not for the masses. For the masses, it's a question of priorities. We all have time available. And if we make time for Torah study, it becomes a priority in our lives. We will reap the eternal benefits from that. And the money promises. When it comes time for reward, he himself is going to be dispensing it. And who does not want to be on the receiving end of the Almighty's dispensation of reward? So may we all study Torah with great intensity and great diligence. And even if we don't have so much time to do it, let's carve out some time for Torah study. And you know what? Today it's easier than ever. So that's uh, some of the thoughts we have of this mission. My email address is rabbiwalbegim.com. As always, I look forward to hearing your questions and comments.